Welcome to Talking Underwater. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that we were doing accents this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're we're crossing pretty close to the um, to Halloween here. Gotta so. keep it fresh. Keep yeah. it fresh. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we, we will revisit the solar tsunami we mentioned last episode by sharing some comments from a listener. And we will also discuss the lead and copper rule news and responses to it, as well as a plastics pollution emergency response program in Canada. And lastly, we have an interview with Kimberly Lemmy. She is the Director of Program Learning and Influence for Water for People. For listeners unfamiliar with this organization, we talked to Kim about the nonprofit, about how the nonprofit goes beyond installation to teach maintenance of systems and get communities involved. We also reflect together on the relationship between water infrastructure and the One Water Movement. So we'll start that off with the comments from last episode. Um, after we published that episode, I got a chat from uh, Grant Izzo on LinkedIn regarding the silver tsunami, and he um, agreed to have us share his comments. So I'll just read them here because I thought that it was um, particularly uh, prescient and interesting. So uh, he says, quote, I recently began working at a municipal wastewater treatment plant doing the pre-treatment program. I was able to spend about a month training with my predecessor, showing me as much as he could before retiring because no one else knew what he knew. This was extremely helpful, but for all the things he did not show me, I had to figure out on my own. I was able to change for modern times because a lot of the answers to my questions were, well, that's how we've always done it. While there were more opportunities for young people to enter the industry, it is also an opportunity for change in the industry and change for the better. Notably, increases in technology, fresh perspectives, and more adaptability. So I thought that was an interesting take. Uh, It does reflect a lot on kind of that legacy knowledge aspect, but also noting that sometimes legacy knowledge isn't the best practice anymore. Maybe there is a new best practice. I also found it interesting, especially in light of some recent conversations that I've had in my travels at trade shows, that I've heard many people say the silver tsunami isn't coming. It's already here. Mm-hmm. Millennials on average are 38 years old. They're in the workforce. They're here. So it's exciting to hear a perspective about the innovation that's to come and how we can leverage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, it, I think it's interesting. It's per, that I'm happy that he comment, commented. I, I would not have thought about that perspective had he not. So. And I think it's interesting that he hit on the... Um, you know, people saying, well, that's always, you know, how we've done it all the mm-hmm. time, because I think in previous places I've worked, I've gotten that, and maybe it's similar for you guys as oh, well, yeah. that people, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's everyone's busy in their day, so it's easier to just kind of do it the way it's always been done, but I think mm-hmm. with millennials coming in, there is an opportunity to kind of change things up and make it a little more modernized. Yeah, yeah. I think almost every job has that, mm-hmm. oh, this is how we've always done mm-hmm. it, and um there can be some resistance to that change or to changing those things. So. But great to note as well how essential it is to leverage the legacy knowledge before mm-hmm. we think about rethinking processes. It's important mm-hmm. to learn from those who come before. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, that legacy knowledge probably just informs, too, what you're going to do with the future. Like, just because you don't agree with that being the best practice doesn't mean that it doesn't have an influence on the future practice, too. So um, it's 
yeah, a lot more complicated, I think, than we <laughs> probably originally had uh, anticipated. But really cool. Thank you, Grant, for, uh, for commenting and, and reaching out. Moving on, some recent industry news that impacts across the water industry is on October 10th, the U.S. EPA announced proposed lead and copper rule revisions. This proposal marks the first major update to the rule since 1991 and also aims to improve how communities test for lead in drinking water and respond. Some key points to note for those not familiar with the updates. The proposed revisions will require utilities to test for lead in childcare facilities and schools. It will require utilities to inventory lead service lines and make that information public. It also requires utilities to notify homeowners within 24 hours if utility finds elevated lead levels. The agency also plans to adopt a trigger level of 10 ppb, which is less than the current action level of 15 ppb. Also notable, small systems serving fewer than 10,000 people will have some flexibility in how they respond to lead levels. This is reported by the Washington Post as well. Interesting. Um, one of the, the key thing that I noticed in there was the inventory of lead service lines. I feel like that's such a critical component in addressing the problem. And I think a lot of communities have lead, lead service lines, and the biggest barrier right now is just that, the inventory. Um, in my previous job as a newspaper reporter, I worked for a, um, or I covered a community of about a thousand people and they didn't have a map of any of their water lines in the community at all. Um, and while I was there, they were going through a process to get GIS mapping of all of that so that like in the future, they know how to address the issues of, of inventory of pipe and what has broken over the years and condition assessments and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I'm sure that there are tons of other communities similar to that one that are running into that same problem of we have no idea it was lost in the legacy knowledge, speaking of the legacy knowledge, <laughs> lost in the legacy knowledge of the last public works director or, or what have you, um, or the paper burned in a fire in a closet one year or like who knows. There's all sorts of things that could create those problems. So this introduction of inventory of lead service lines I think is particularly important and um, that to me is going to be a major business opportunity for, for the industry as well. So that's a great point. That's a great point. As well as how utilities are required to notify homeowners within twenty four hours. This elite will hopefully alleviate a lot of lack of communication issues, mistrust issues, mm -hmm. and create relationships between utilities and consumers stronger than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, it feels like that leans really heavily on this whole smart water thing, right? Um, that's That was a big deal last year. It grew in intensity this year. We heard a lot more about smart water quality this year, too, and en engaging consumers about the quality of their water in smart networks and whatnot. Um, Actually, I did. I conducted an interview um, earlier this week for my State of the Industry report, specifically on the smart water industry and the direction it's headed, and cool. um, how that does interface also with the GIS system elements as well. So, really looking forward to delving a lot more deeply into that. It was the um, my, my interview was with um, was his name David Wachall. I can't. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, <laughs> but um, but David had some really awesome insights about that. Um, and I'm looking forward to sharing those in the State of the Industry report in December. Awesome. Looking forward to reading it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was that, that, was a, that was a good thing, a good, a good interview. I was really pleased with just kind of the direction things went. We talked a lot about 
all of the elements involved there, a lot of the drivers invo- uh, for smart water, as well as the barriers that are coming into play in getting those, uh, getting that equipment in play. So. so this revision to the lead and copper rule has been in the works since 2010, and as I oh stated gosh. earlier, has not been previously updated since 1991. So that timeline is interesting to me because now a lot of conversations are turning to emerging contaminants and there's a lot of concern that change isn't happening fast enough. This shows me that a lot of time and research is going into change, which is a Mm -hmm. good thing, but also informs the time period that a change takes to occur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. There's like, I'm sure they conducted so many studies and (laughs) so much science went into this, I'm sure. So um, let's talk about some of the responses, too. Um, can you talk about how, like, how did WQA and environmental groups and whatnot, what were some of the responses to, the, to this? So some industry groups, notably in my sector, the Water Quality Association, have come out in response to these revisions. The WQA has come out in support of the lead and copper rule revisions and has said that they are pleased to see the EPA taking further steps to strengthen our nation's battle against lead in drinking water. That quote's attributed to the WQA Executive Director, Polly Undesser. Other groups, however, some environmental groups, have come out saying that the revisions are not tough enough and that they should prioritize replacing lead service lines, not just testing for them. So we'll be interested to see how those responses inform the final revision. Yeah. So I'm going to pull on a little bit of my knowledge from the um, roundtable that I hosted at WEFTEC. Great. Um, there were a lot of um, comments made there about how regulations generally have been pretty good, and they have definitely certainly improved the environment, but the burden that it ends up placing on utilities is getting harder and harder to comply with. And I hear that. Um, I mean, a common question, like just rhetorical question was, tell me a utility that doesn't have a consent decree. Yeah. Um, and I'm, it's, a good, it's a good point. Um, these, while, while we see the value and the importance of these kinds of regulations and stuff, it also does put a burden upon utilities to get m- even more involved with, um, with things. And like where, especially with an industry, a public industry that doesn't have, um, doesn't have a lot of public funds or f- mm-hmm. federal money co- flowing into it, where where does the money come to support to create the support network to make these things possible too? Just having the regulation isn't enough. There needs to yep. be more to it as well. So anyway, I, I thought I'd share that because that was something I found particularly interesting at that um, at that um, roundtable was that while regulations are generally seen as good, they also present tons of challenges for the working person in yep. those plants and stuff. So. That's a fair perspective to add. And I mean, look at Michigan, for instance, just in the past year, they've been working to tighten their lead, state lead regulations even firmer than federal regu- regulations and face some lawsuits and backlash from groups such as you just mentioned, concerned mm-hmm. about the financial ramifications of that. So that's a very good perspective to bring into mm-hmm. play. Yeah. Anyway, I think that that, that, that topic is so vast to cover we, there's yeah. no way we can possibly cover everything on that so again just like 
with anything that we talk about, we would really appreciate you chiming in too. Absolutely. Um, if you, if you as the listener um, have some thoughts that you'd like to share, please do. Clearly, um, we're excited and happy to <laughs> provide those comments to yeah. uh, on the podcast as well. So, but Katie, you had um, an, a news item as well about some some plastic pollution um, response program in yeah, Canada. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the Ocean Legacy Foundation, which is based in Canada, recently launched a plastic pollution emergency response program called EPIC, which is made of four pillars, um, education, policy, infrastructure, and cleanup. Um, in a press release, the nonprofit said that the program targets communities that have lesser management capacity for solid waste and plastic pollution. Um, the goal of this program is to assist with the restoration of natural ecosystems to hopefully improve human and wildlife health. Um, and additionally, the program will develop a long-term plastic collection, processing infrastructure, and policy to mitigate ocean plastic pollution sources. Um, the program will help communities by providing education and training, best practice support and management strategies, and developing recycling systems and action-based engagement. Hopefully some of the uh, benefits will be cleaner and safer oceans and shorelines, landfill waste reduction, uh, technological innovation, and others. So it's it's uh, kind of a cool uh, program that they've got going on over there. Yeah. Have you seen ideas like this echoed in other places across the country? This looks like this is based in Canada. Yeah, so it's based in Canada. I... Um, I'm not aware of others. I mean, I'm sure there are a ton, but I'm not aware of ones that are, you know, specifically just like this. But I, if there are any out there that, you know, we'd love to hear about them. So please share with us if you have something similar going on in your communities. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And finally, we have our interview with Kimberly Lemmy, the Director of Program Learning and Influence for Water for People. Um, our interview discussed the genesis of the nonprofit and the, quote, everyone forever concept, which gets communities involved in the maintenance of drinking water systems. We also hear her thoughts on the One Water Movement based on her experiences with the nonprofit. So here is our interview with Kimberly Lemmy. All right. We are here today with Kim Lemmy the Director of Program Learning and Influence for Water for People. Kim, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having us. So to start off for our listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about Water for People's goals and the genesis? Yeah, Water for People is a nonprofit, a 501c3 organization that was founded in 1991 and really was founded by a group of sector, water and wastewater sector uh, retirees or people who were nearing the end of their, their careers who wanted to take what they had done in the U.S. space and, and make a difference in the water poverty uh, crisis. Uh, and so in 1991, that was, um, that looked a lot different than it looks today, but it, it was, Again, looking at emptying or, or, or ending the, the water and sanitation crisis that still exists today. And so that carries over with some of your goals now are very founded in the beginning of the program. How have your goals changed? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and um, ending water poverty and making sure that everyone on the planet has access to clean and safe uh, and affordable water and sanitation services continues to be our goal. Um, the way that we've 
executed our work has shifted a little bit, but the goals at the end of the day are making sure that we as external actors don't need to be in any one community or country forever, that the, that the services can be delivered and delivered in a sustainable way, um, both from an environmental perspective, from a financial perspective, um, and, and from a, creating mini utilities, if you will, uh, that, that function as we see our utilities work here in the U.S. And so making sure that we do that without having to have a forever presence is, is our goal. And our model that we call everyone forever is really to end the water and sanitation crisis. So if you look at the sustainable development goals from the United Nations, SDG 6 focuses on water and sanitation, and everyone forever really looks to uh, meet that, that sustainable development goal. Yeah, so um, one of the barriers of sanitation could be a lack of education surrounding the care and maintenance of those systems. So I know that water for people, they, they go, you guys go beyond just that installation framework and you do work with those communities to develop a, a grander scope of the work there. Could you talk a little bit about how you get the communities involved? Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a good one and one that I really am passionate about because sanitation is so closely linked with water sources and cleanliness of water and people's ability to access water. So making sure that we can keep humans and their waste separated is, is the main goal. Um, but you're right that it goes much beyond the infrastructure. And um, we, the, the phil philanthropic and charity community, can go out and build all the toilets we want. And we learned the hard way. Okay. Over a, long over a decade ago, that building toilets alone does not create does not end the sanitation crisis. Um, there are a lot of uh, and many and varied reasons that people choose not to use a toilet if they have it. Um, but there's also building a toilet for someone without any of the services that go around it. So you can dig a hole in the ground, and once it fills up, if there's no way for them to empty it, that perpetuates the problem. And so. The installation of the hardware is important, um, of the infrastructure is important, but the services that surround that infrastructure are really critical to the long-lasting nature of the service. Um, and so working closely with communities in terms of social norms and making sure that people understand the impact of open defecation, and it's not just an individual impact, but it's a community, a communal impact that it could have impacts for people downstream and it has an impact on um, others within their own community. And so working in multiple different, from multiple different angles that, that really get the community leadership to understand the importance of sanitation services. So that, that, that really starts at the beginning from masons and um, people who dig dig holes to build superstructures over them to build a pit latrine or who put in the plumbing for a septic tank service. Um, so you look at the beginning, the building of the infrastructure, but then making sure that that whole value chain of services is available um, 
for people and affordable for people and that there's a demand for it. So there's multiple angles that we go at it, but really our sanitation work is driven by the market demand. And so creating that market demand is one step of what we do um, and making sure that there's an understanding of the, the benefit to using sanitation facilities um, is, is a lot of what our work is, is based on. So you touched on in the beginning of our chat about the Everyone Forever concept. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please, and also how uh, long-term solutions you see for managing the global water crisis and how that model kind of comes into play there? Yeah, that's great. Um, Everyone Forever is, is, again, a very holistic approach at um, solving the global water and sanitation crisis. And so, again, similar to what I was just saying around the sanitation work, is it's, it goes well beyond drilling a borehole and putting in a hand pump on top of that. Um, it, go, it, it, it looks much deeper at all of the angles of, is this service affordable? And, and some communities will say, well, water is a human right, so we shouldn't have to pay for it. And it's getting it's getting communities and community leaders to understand that we're not paying you're not, we're not asking to pay for the service the water water and sanitation office in a district isn't asking you're not paying for the water you're paying for the service of the water so what makes that water continue to run over time so what's the operation and maintenance plan what is the plan for regulation over that um, as it's needed. And it looks different in the nine different countries where we work. Um, the context is very different. Even in rural, if you say rural communities in, in low-income countries, it, the context looks very different. So what that water service delivery looks like and what the oversight by the government looks like is very different in different places. But instead of just looking at, if we, if we bring the infrastructure to a community, then the problem is solved. It's looking at the long-term service around that infrastructure and how do you keep that infrastructure functioning at its highest level throughout its entire useful life? What's the plan when the useful life ends? And what, is, there a, is there an access to a financing mechanism to, um, to make major repairs and replacements on that infrastructure so we don't have the same problem in 15 to 20 years when a hand pump breaks down or when a gravity-fed system needs major investment to keep it running. Um, and so it's really this look at all of the pieces. So it's governance and it's management day-to-day -day and it's water quality and water resource management protection. Is it source protection? Is it planting trees? Um, it's, it's looking at the whole entire life cycle of a water system and all the services around that that are needed. Um, and so it's changing the whole system of how water is delivered and how water services are delivered, um, which is not super glamorous, but it's really critical for, for us to actually make meaningful progress towards SDG 6. So here on Talking Underwater, we often reflect on the relationship between water infrastructure and the One Water Movement. Uh, how have you seen this relationship in your experience, and how um, can this idea impact the global water crisis? 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's really fundamental to to all of the work that you and your listeners are doing, as well as the work that we do um, in countries around the world, because it's all interlinked and it's all it's all related. Because whether it's sanitation services for people that will impact the groundwater, if if people don't have sanitation services and they don't have a toilet and they're defecating in the open then you're going to impact the the water sources so groundwater rivers and streams um and and so you can't really do one without looking at the other in my opinion and you in order to address water services you also have to talk about sanitation services and in in the space where we work you often get people who have a, an affinity for one or the other and talking with people who are who can understand that they're all super linked, whether it's protecting a watershed that is 30 miles outside of an urban area in sub-Saharan Africa, you have to include that in the conversation you're having within the city. So if we're working in an in urban area and um, kind of an informal, unplanned settlement that, that are growing rapidly around that urban area, you have to also have the conversation about the watershed upstream in order to actually address the problem, the acute problem of water and sanitation services in those quickly growing um, peri-urban areas. So it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a shift in the water sector um, because it has, there's more of an acceptance and an understanding that it's an entire system that we're looking at and we're not just looking at getting access to people who don't have access to water services, but it's it's looking at the whole picture and all of the many pieces that impact that. And that includes political upheaval, right? And so it's not just it, it water and sanitation services don't exist in a bubble. They they can have impacts from all sorts of areas. And so I think recognizing that all of the different pieces of that um, fit together and can't be ignored has the sector has come a long way in understanding that. That's a really good point, Kim, especially how sanitation, drinking water, it's all interconnected and intermingled, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about it in the sphere that you work on it because it's definitely, you're thinking about it in different ways that we sometimes explore in our podcast, so it's great to hear your insight. So how can readers learn more about your mission and get involved with Water for People? Great. Um, we, we always welcome people who are curious and interested in understanding the, the issue more because it is a global, it's a fundamental crisis and without fixing, without addressing SDG 6 and, and talking about the water and sanitation crisis, so many of the other uh, sustainable development goals, um, economic uh, success and economic development and women and girls, and so it's, it's a fundamental one that if we don't address that, none of the other ones will really truly su succeed. So if, I, I think there are a couple of different angles that, that your listeners can um, get involved. First of all, you can go to our website, waterforpeople.org, um, and there are a couple of different areas there that you can. We are actually launching a new website in the coming months, um, but the current website can also direct you to uh, lots of different ways to get involved. If you're if you're interested in um, kind of advocacy and raising awareness and 
and fundraising for us, the members of AWWA committees and WEF member associations are, they all have a connection with Water for People and um, do lots of amazing volunteer events around the country for us on an ongoing basis. And so that's one way you can get involved in your local area. Um, the World Water Corps is a, a volunteer opportunity, is our periodic volunteer opportunities to support in a more technical way, uh, and those get posted on our website, and um, our team here can, can point people in the right direction. Sometimes it's a desk study, sometimes it's going and working with our teams in country on a very specific um, scope of work and um, problem solving. And then the third way I would just say is to, to get, become a champion of our work is to get in touch with us and go to our website and donate and, um, and let us know what you're interested in and we can point you in the right direction. Thank you, Kim. We hope some of our listeners choose to get involved and thanks for sharing those action items with us. And thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for that interview, Kimberly, and for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, before we wrap up this episode, just a reminder that our Stormwater Solutions Conference and Exhibition is right around the corner from November 12th to 14th in Tinley Park, Illinois. Uh, you can still register at swsconferenceexpo.com. We'll see you there. Yeah. And also, the Infrastructure Virtual Summit is on demand. So if you were not able to attend at the beginning of October, um, know that all the webinars are still available on demand. Go to roads-water-summit.com and you can get access to all of them for free. Yep, and that wraps up our episode today. If you enjoyed what you heard, like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And as always, you can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. Thank you. Yep, please drop a line. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Toodles.